Greetings. Well, good morning to you again. My name is John Huggins, the chaplain at Barry. Uh, happy to be filling in for Brian this morning. Uh, today uh, we are in the uh, season of Lent still, as most of you know. Uh, but if you didn't grow up in a tradition that practices or keeps the liturgical calendar, that can seem like a sort of a weird thing. It's even sort of a weird word, right? Lent. Well, it's an old English word for the springtime, just if you, to know where this word comes from. And it's a season of preparation. Much like Advent prepares for Christmas, Lent is a preparatory season for Easter. A way to help us have Easter, which is paradigmatic for all of Christian life, this resurrection life. It's a way for it to not just sort of come and go on the calendar with just a little bit of celebration but for us to feel the full weight of the joy of the resurrection and death defeated and sins forgiven and Christ as our risen Lord. A way to prepare for that. So it tends to be a season of fasting, a season of repentance, a season of soul searching. It takes place 40 days prior to Easter. That's 40 days minus Sundays. Uh, and that's because Sundays are never to be fast days. They are feasting days. So in some ways... If you gave up something for Lent, you could actually cheat today if you wanted. I just want you to know on Sundays because it's a fast, it's a feasting day. And so you get back to it tomorrow. You know. It's sort of a, a season of spiritual gardening where you go through your heart and mind and begin to look for the things, the weeds in your life. Those things that choke out the fruit of the spirit and keep them from fully flourishing in our lives. It's where we do some intentional soul searching to see what keeps my life from being fully shaped by the love of God and keeps me from reflecting that into the world. The number 40, of course, is a biblical number, but specifically it's the number of days that Jesus goes into the wilderness and spends there, undergoing trials and temptations of every sort, but having a victory over the enemy. One of the important things to note about that passage where Jesus is led into the wilderness for 40 days, is that in the Gospels, it's preceded by a very dramatic event, Jesus' baptism. And at Jesus' baptism, there's this moment where the Holy Spirit descends upon him, empowering, anointing him for his ministry. And God the Father speaks from heaven and says, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And this significant and important affirmation Jesus takes with him into the wilderness for 40 days. It's important for us to know, for those of us who are going to practice something like Lent, that we also, in Christ, share in Christ's affirmation. That is to say that God looks at us and says, you are my beloved children with whom I am well pleased. And carrying that affirmation gives us strength to endure a wilderness period. You see, we don't go through the season of Lent as a way of currying God's favor, of trying to get God to like us better. We already have the affirmation on the front end. It's more about growing in our intimacy with God, of being liberated from the things that get in the way of our knowing God's closeness, seeing God's truth, and being a reflection of his love. And as in all Christian life more broadly, these periods of death, so to speak, are in the service of life, greater, more abundant life. So in light of the Lenten season, I wanted to speak about uh, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which is one of Jesus' 
famous parables, continuing this series of stories that Jesus told. And so we're going to look at that passage here in just a moment. But before we do that, let's pray together. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Please help us to see this morning that your mercy is great, great for each one of us, and the only sure promise for us to rely on. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So we're going to look at the passage this morning, which is found in Luke chapter 18, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, sometimes called the Pharisee and the publican. I've lately been reading through the New Testament, doing a a, a little project, um, a sort of New Testament theology project, where I'm reading through with a journal, and with each passage, I'm kind of asking the question, uh, what must be true of God in light of this passage? Sometimes those statements are explicit, sometimes they're implied. This is not necessarily an academic exercise, but more of a prayerfully listening to the text, examining the text, and looking for God to speak to us through it, to tell us about himself. So as I read through the parable, maybe you can ask that question. What, is, what must be true of God in light of this passage? Let's read it together. Uh, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a relatively short story, but the message is powerful. What do we learn about God in such a passage? Well, there's the explicit statement that Jesus makes about the humble being exalted and that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. This is the point of the parable. Uh, But what's also implied in the text? We see that God is responsive to his people in prayer. Not just to the specifics of the prayer. He's responsive to that. In other words, the tax collector receives the mercy for which he asked, but God is also responsive to us, like not just to the things we're asking for, but to us, to our hearts, to our demeanor, to our attitude, to how we're feeling and thinking, and especially to humility and faith. We see that God prefers the repentant sinner to the self-righteous person. And Jesus echoes words found in Proverbs 3.34, which are also quoted in the New Testament twice, 1 Peter 5 and James 4, where it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we'll talk more about pride and humility as we go. Let's walk through this passage, though, for a moment. It says at the beginning that he told this parable because there were people who trusted in their own righteousness and then looked down on others. So they're not only sort of self-justified, feeling pretty good about themselves, but arrogant, looking down on other people, treating them with contempt. And so he picks examples. There's like 
like an example of a typically good person, an example of a typically bad person in their culture. So the Pharisee, who are the Pharisees? This particular Pharisee is proud of his extra works. That is to say, he goes beyond the law of Moses, doing things that aren't even commanded there by fasting twice a week and tithing everything that he has. Uh, The Pharisees were actually generally admired for their serious observation of the law of Moses. They're very rigorous in keeping it. But Jesus criticizes them for their focus on externals and tending to neglect the more serious matters of the law and the nature of their hearts and authentic love of God. In fact, um, in Matthew chapter 23, there's a more extensive critique of the Pharisees from Jesus where there's a series of woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he says something very similar in Matthew chapter 23. In fact, the same verse is repeated that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And in uh, verse 23 and 24 of Matthew 23, you can see an example of Jesus kind of more extended critique here. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy faithfulness these you ought to have done without neglecting the others you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel that's a great statement and then there's the tax collector Uh, the tax collectors are almost always presented negatively in greco-roman literature uh, often irreligious folks who worked with the romans so if you were a jewish person working with the romans and collecting the taxes sort of seen as a traitor to your people Opportunities for corruption abounded, and people seemed to assume the tax collectors were corrupt. But this particular one, a typical representative of someone that the crowd might see as bad, begs for God's mercy, doesn't try to present his virtues to God, but simply leans on the hope that God will be merciful. And of course, Jesus says it's this one that went down to his house justified rather than the other. You see the Pharisee standing by himself, the text says. He's sort of isolated from other people, reflecting on his own goodness. And then the tax collector standing far off because he's afraid. He knows he doesn't deserve to be in God's presence. And the overall point being, the one who renounces any claim to righteousness and looks to God for mercy is the one who is declared righteous by God. Let me say it again. It's the one who renounces any claim to righteousness and looks to God for mercy. That's the one declared righteous by God and who goes home at peace with God. Uh, Lately, I've been reading through St. Augustine's Confessions with a group of students at at Barry, and um, all throughout there are themes of pride and humility that are dressed throughout. And you can actually see the logic of this story and others like it informing the way Augustine thinks about life with God. And Augustine's a North African bishop, late 4th, early 5th century, arguably the most influential theologian in Western Christianity. And uh, there were several excerpts from the confessions that I wanted to share with you, also as a way of sort of recommending it. You know, it's actually not difficult to read, and everyone should read this book at some point. It's really important. The Confessions by St. Augustine. Okay, I got that in there. But listen to this, a couple of uh, excerpts from him. He says, When I am evil, making confession to you is simply to be displeased with myself. When I am good, making confession to you is simply to make no claim on my own behalf. 
For you, Lord, confer blessing on the righteous, but only after you have first justified the ungodly. So his point is when we come to God in confession, when we're conscious of sin, our confession is an acknowledgement of need. We need his forgiveness. When we come to confession and we feel that we've been good or done well, confession is making no claim on our own behalf. My goodness is not my own, but a gift from God, the work of the Spirit. At one point, or at many points throughout Augustine's life, he struggled to attain or become righteous on his own. And he has this moment of trying to get rid of certain sinful habits and vices where the Spirit speaks to him and says this, Why are you relying on yourself only to find yourself unreliable? Cast yourself upon him. Do not be afraid. He will not withdraw himself so that you fall. Make the leap without anxiety. He will catch you and heal you. Again, relying completely, not on oneself, but on the mercy of God. Again, he says, uh, My Lord, every day my conscience makes confession, relying on the hope of your mercy as more to be trusted than its own innocence. I want you to think about that last phrase there. The hope of your mercy is more to be trusted than its own innocence. Augustine says, I might think that I'm innocent. I might feel innocent. That is not reliable (laughs) or trustworthy. That sense of my own goodness. I'm okay. I'm not really much of a sinner or haven't done that that badly. He says, the hope of God's mercy is more reliable. You can trust it. You can totally bank on that and lean on that. Again, at another point, he says, no one who considers his frailty would dare to attribute to his own strength his chastity and innocence so that he has less cause to love you as if he had less need of your mercy by which you forgive the sins of those converted to you. It's like he's saying, if we saw reality as it was, no one in their right mind would think that on their own they have become righteous. For he recognizes something about himself. And he says things like this, without you, what am I to myself but a guide to my own (laughs) self-destruction? I highlight things like this in the book because I'm relating to these. Yes, this is true. In your eyes, I've become a problem to myself. <laughs> that is my sickness. Can you relate to that? Ever since that that's true? I'm my own worst enemy. I'm my own problem. There's things going on in me. There's a war going on with me that makes me sick. And yet, he will say, even though I'm a guide to my own self-destruction, self-justification still worms its way into me. It's still there, trying to stand on my own two feet before God. But then at the conclusion of reflections like these, Augustine writes, there is one hope, one ground of confidence, one reliable promise, your mercy. It's almost as if he was reading this passage before he wrote that. Only one thing you can fully be confident in is that God will be merciful to the repentant. So again, the one who renounces any claim to righteousness and looks to God for mercy is the one who is declared righteous by God. Uh, The the Greek and the Hebrew words behind the English word mercy point to God's loving generosity. That is, it's an appeal to his kindness, his steadfast love, his willingness to forgive and pardon sin. Uh, In this particular passage, the word that's used is more like the person is asking 
to be propitiated toward me. That's a fancy word. That's a biblical word that's associated with atonement and reconciliation. And the reason why that's important is because the tax collector is not simply asking to be let off the hook. I've done something wrong. Just let me off the hook and I can go my own way. He's asking for a new relationship with God. Wants to be reconciled and in fellowship with God. Not just free of guilt, but be rightly related to God. The one who looks to God for such mercy is declared righteous, or as it says in the text, is justified, goes home justified. That is to say, in the right, or more formally in the Bible, this notion of justification is that you are in the covenant community, which is a community of grace and mercy. So that is to say, he, is, he goes home reconciled to God, in fellowship with him. Now, when you hear a, a passage like that, if you have a, you know, kind of a strong sense of your own need for God, it's the best news in the world, right? To hear God say to you in your sense of uh, guilt or shame that you can be justified, <coughs> reconciled to God just by hoping in his mercy. Uh, but I know it would be possible to read a passage like this and think, well, what does it mean? Does it mean that, um, that God wants us to have like low uh, self-esteem? You know, just to think of ourselves only as, you know, worms and trash or something like that. Uh, Does he wish for us to have a diminished sort of existence? Uh, This was a critique that famously Frederick Nietzsche made of Christianity. He said that Christianity turned people into lowly, cowering, and slavish sort of people. Of course, Nietzsche was responding to a caricature of Christianity and not the real thing. Because the point here is, no, not to diminish us but to liberate us from looking for life in ourselves where it doesn't exist and to liberate us from forces of corruption and truly dehumanizing vices. You see, self-righteous pride naturally leads to destruction, whereas humility leads to life because humility leads us to the triune God. Humility puts us in right relation to God, where once again we can be his image bearers rather than pretending to be him. So being under God rather than being God, a position that we're not fit for because we lack the wisdom, the power, and the goodness to be God. No, humility leads us to God who is the giver of life. As it says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life And have it abundantly. Or again, in 1 John 4, 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And not die. Again in John chapter 6, Jesus says something similar. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they say to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Tim Keller often says, to receive God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But for many of us, we don't have nothing. Or to say it differently, we really think we have something. (laughs) 
We really think maybe our need isn't all that great. We're okay. This sort of attitude keeps us from looking to God for mercy and thus keeps us from being reconciled to him and thus, be, and thus keeps us from receiving the life that is truly life that he wants to give us. And so, in light of this passage, uh, we're about to come to the Lord's table for communion. It's appropriate uh, for us during this season of Lent, as it is always, for us to take up this particular posture that we see even in the tax collector, an appeal to God for his mercy. So I want to teach you real quick, if you're not familiar with this, a form and method of prayer that we might use to approach the Lord's table this morning. It's sometimes referred to as hesychasm. Hesychasm comes from the Greek word uh, hesukia, which means stillness, rest, quiet, or silence. I think I have a slide for that. And the hesychastic form of prayer has been used by Eastern Orthodox Christians for centuries and um, later on was picked up by the Western Church. It's basically a form of prayer while breathing or using your breath as a support in praying. So one seeks to be still before the Lord and quiet and to focus one's mind on a particular thought and to associate the thought with your breathing. The prayer that's usually used in the hesychastic form of prayer is called the Jesus Prayer. Uh, The Jesus Prayer is simply, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Oftentimes the way the prayer is used is that while breathing in, one would think or pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, and as you exhale, have mercy on me. This prayer echoes the prayer of the tax collector. Uh, Those who've made use of this practice try to make the prayer as common or um, pervasive in their life as breathing is in your life. And it seems to me that this is a good way to come to the table today. So as we pray and begin to move towards the table in a moment, maybe you'll take up the Jesus prayer yourself as you breathe in. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, and as you exhale, have mercy on me. Relying on the sure hope, the sure ground of confidence, the one reliable promise that God will be merciful to those who seek it from him. Let's pray together. Uh, Gracious God, we thank you for the truth revealed in this passage, that not only are you responsive to our prayer, you're responsive to us knowing what we need, and that this appeal in faith and humility to your mercy, you are especially responsive to. I pray that every person in this room today could know the joy of being declared righteous in the right, going home reconciled to you, in fellowship with you, and ready to reflect the life that is truly life back into the world. As we come to your table here in just a moment, We pray that you would please bless and sanctify these elements to be for us true spiritual food and drink. That your Holy Spirit would come upon them to minister to the needs of every person here today. You knowing each person's need for strength or comfort or healing or help or deliverance or comfort. Would you please minister those things to us through the sacrament. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, afterwards, he took the cup, and he said, drink from this, all of you, for this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Uh, These are the gifts of God for the people of God. We can take them in remembrance that Christ has died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. All baptized Christians are welcome at the Lord's table. And as you come this morning, let us remember and pray with the tax collector, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us.